I thought I might delay a minute. I didn't know if we had a call to a worship or a special today. I texted Sue, and she goes, not that I know of, but that left open to, I guess, spontaneity, right? Uh, anyway, um, so I'm preaching again, and just so you know, uh, I think it's good for Christians to do something way beyond their limits or their abilities, and um, so that's the way I feel, uh, and so I just pray that the Lord would speak through me this morning, and uh Open your uh, Bibles to Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. And verse 12 starts with, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, lift this morning up to you. I just pray that your spirit would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to your word. May uh, these words um, be your words, and may they have the desired effect on your people. We lift this prayer up in your name. Amen. So um, we're talking about sanctification this morning, and uh, it's a subject that really, I think, perked my interest about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, Just some background, Um, we had been at a church where the theology of of sanctification, I just didn't think was quite right, and I couldn't really articulate it or understand what what's missing or what's wrong, and uh, we were down in the city with the kids, uh, and we happened to go to Frontline Church, the main one, um, downtown, and uh, um, the pastor there just did an amazing job, and I was just like, wow, but one of the lights came on, I'm like, okay, now I can understand what maybe was off, but this is what the Bible says about sanctification, and so that's what I'm hoping to explain this morning. Um, more recently, in 2019, a group of us went to uh, John MacArthur's church, and uh, he has a Truth Matters conference every year, and this also coincided with his 50th anniversary. And uh, the theme of that conference was the sufficiency of Scripture, and there were several, several sermons done that talked about the sufficiency, I'm having trouble saying that, sufficiency of Scripture uh, in sanctification. And then more recently, in our Wednesday night group, um, we are going through, I think it's about a 40-sermon series, uh, a gentleman, a pastor named Steve Lawson, uh, who is is really good, by the way, is doing a series on Philippians. And when he said this, when we were going through this, I'm like, that's what I'm preaching on. So this is what we're covering. Uh, and this week, we're just going to go over verse 12. Uh, it's kind of a natural break, which is man's responsibility with sanctification, and next week we're going to talk about God's responsibility. Uh, It's a synergistic uh, work, uh, not a monergistic work, uh, meaning that God and us are working together. And and let me just emphasize and throw it out there so there's no confusion. I'm not talking about salvation. We are not saved by works. This is about sanctification. Um. The letter in Philippians 
is to believers. It's written to the church in Philippi. And so this is a church, this is a letter to believers. So he's not talking to unbelievers. So we need to emphasize that. Um, there's a, my wife and I's experience as far as salvation goes, uh, we sat in churches for years. Um, we actually, when we met, we didn't realize that we were in a big church in, in Tulsa. Didn't even know we were going to the same church when we started dating. Uh, but through the course of years, we uh, set, were in different churches wherever we lived, in Dallas and then in Shreveport. And uh, Karen, Karen was saved um, in Shreveport uh, and me several years later um, here in Enid. Um, but we sat individually in churches, and we thought if you were to ask us, we would say, yeah, we're Christian. But I can promise you that we were not born again. We, we, we had a head knowledge, but our lives had not been changed by the work of God. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I think also I think this is important. But before I go further, I want to talk about salvation. So let's, let's back up a minute. We're not talking about sanctification, sanctification, but salvation. And I just want to, I know we know these verses, but I want to cover them. So Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then later in Romans in 6.23 it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. So I ask you the question, What can a man dead in his sin do to be saved? We get an answer in Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus in John 3, in verses 1 through 8. And I'll read part of this to you. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and he be born? And Jesus answered, and this is, I think, a key verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Notice Jesus did not tell him to make a decision, walk an aisle, say a prayer, or sign a card, but stressed that he must be born again by the Spirit. In fact, earlier in John, he writes that we were born of God, not by our will. In John 1, 12, it says, But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Also, um, there's some other verses that I wanted to call attention to, and uh, these are the Lord, Lord verses and uh, chapter 7 of Matthew. And Matthew 7, 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have, you not pro- have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In addition, in Luke 6, Jesus says, But why do you call me 
Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you who he is like. He is like a man building a house who's dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And, a ruin, and the ruin of that house was great. Let me say again, I am not preaching salvation by works, but we are saved unto good works. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. I wanted to read you two. There's uh, one of my favorite theologians um, and probably one of the more prominent theologians of the 20th century is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you know who he is or, or know much about him. Uh, just briefly, he was a German, born in Germany, um, came to the United States, spent several years here, and against the advice of his friends, went back to Germany as the Nazi Nazis came into power. Uh, he went back to support the church um, and ended up in some regards speaking out against the Nazis. Uh, his most noted work that I'm going to read from you today is called the book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I would challenge you to read that. I'll be honest, it is a crazy hard read, and it's one of those books that I just have to keep reading and have to go back and read again, sometimes two or three times to understand it. But there's a lot of good truth in there. Um, and just interestingly, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was eventually jailed, and uh, he was hung. Uh, he was a musician, too, and he was hung with a piano wire eight days before the Nazis uh, surrendered to the Allies. Uh, but anyway, he coined a phrase that, that I think is, that covers some of what we see today, and it talks about cheap grace. Chief, chief grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, great without, grace without cost. The essence of grace we suppose is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Christ Jesus living and incarnate. Then he goes on to contrast. What's costly grace? Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the, like, the kingly rule of Christ, who forsake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. 
the gift which must be which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is a grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So I want to call you to examine your heart today, this morning. Have you ever come to the point in your life that you have felt the weight of or been crushed by your sin? Have you, have you repented from these sins? Cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ for his grace and mercy? Placed your faith only in his work on the cross? These can only happen with God's Spirit at work in you. Is your life showing evidence of that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that next week. Have your affections gradually changed for the things of God? Do you increasingly have a love for Jesus, a love for his word, a love for his people, and want to serve him more and more? If this does not characterize your life, it is not too late. Jesus, our Savior, wishes no, not one of you to be lost, but to come to him. Repent, believe, and follow him. We'll get back to sanctification here. And there's three phases of our sanctification. So I know this, I'm going into some theology here, but I think it's important to, to, to kind of pick these apart. So uh, there's past sanctification. And this is also called positional sanctification. And this happens when we're born again and we receive another long word called justification. Uh, and justification is where we're declared righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And then there's what we're currently, we're all currently undergoing. Those who are following Christ, current sanctification is what we call progressive or practical sanctification. And this is what we're undergoing now. And this is going to be the subject of today's sermon. Lastly is future sanctification, which is also called glorification. And we'll receive this someday in heaven. Uh, like any biblical principle, man's distorted sanctification. And so I want to talk about the two distortions of how uh, man has looked at sanctification and, and, and not really uh, fulfilled the biblical application of that. And one distortion is called the quietist, so quietist view. Uh, it's also called passive sanctification, and it's where man has no role. Man has no nothing to do. Um, other names for it are let go and let God. Um, I like to call it Jello sanctification. Uh, so my tie to Jello is my parents were both kids that grew up at least in part through the Depression. Uh, our diets growing up as kids were probably, you know, I, you know, people are so healthy now when they eat, and I, mean, I promise you, we did not eat healthy. Uh, and we read like Underwood Devil Ham sandwiches, we had hot dogs. I can remember we would have bologna all the time. Um, but my mom would serve Jello at least one meal a day, uh, sometimes two meals a day. I think there's even a few times that she snuck in Jello for breakfast. 
And so, uh, but the reason I come up with the analogy for sanctification is, um, and I had friends, I mean, we, that were really tied into this, um, um, is they really felt like you don't do anything. Kind of like uh, a serving of jello sitting on a table. You just sit there. And if God happens to come by and bump your table and you wiggle, then, then, then that's, that's when you do something. Uh, so it ultimately leads to a degree of antinomianism, and that's a big word. Um, but it, antinomianism literally means against the law, or um, what we would call licentiousness, meaning do whatever. Um, and uh, there's no law to instruct a Christian or how he or she is to live. This is popular today because the professed Christian is not accountable to anybody. Uh, and, and the church leaders, hey, it's good for them, too, because they don't have to hold anybody to account. And it also takes away from discipleship. Uh, they say to themselves, the kind of a common mantra is, you're under grace. You're under grace. Don't worry about it. Or the Holy Spirit will take care of that. I'm not going to have to do anything. Um, practically speaking, this leads Christians to not confront their own sin, let alone to confront the sin of your brothers and sisters. This view in so many ways is similar to the Gnosticism of the New Testament. Um, and in Gnosticism, one of the basic tenets of the Gnosticism of the New Testament is they believed in dualism. And that dualism was all flesh is bad, okay, and spirit is good, which really Jesus Christ really didn't fit into that because we had a God come in human form, and that didn't fit with their with their. Um, uh, philosophy, and so they had to distort that too. But how that plays out today is is that people think that because they have a head knowledge of the of the gospel, it's okay, and as long as they feel like their spirit's good, it doesn't matter what their flesh does. And that obviously is is not true. Um, I have seen this, and it leads to much confusion to those under the teaching. Also, it robs the congregation of true joy, that joy, uh, instead of following selfish ambitions, the joy comes from following the Lord. The other extreme, so we've got one extreme over here, which is do nothing, and then we've got the other extreme, which is called pietism, uh, or or a traditional view of sanctification, uh, also can be called legalism. And this is where man makes up rules alongside or addition to the Bible. And we've seen uh, these rules in different circles. Um, don't ever go to a movie. Don't ever watch TV. Um, I, I know a friend of mine went to a church where women couldn't wear pants, you know. Um, and and the, the, the rules went on and on. Outward behavior is emphasized while ignoring the heart of an individual and its biblical virtues such as compassion, generosity, love, mercy, in ministry to the needy. Jesus had much to say about the Pharisees and the scribes who were the supreme example of this. And you remember the woe, woe verses in Matthew 23. In verse 25 it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Then in verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which indeed appear beautifully outward, but inside you are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you are also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The issue of quietism or traditionalism focuses on the outward appearance at the expense of ignoring the sanctification of the heart. So we're finally going to get to our text. So that's kind of a long introduction. Actually, probably the main body here is shorter than my introduction. Uh, but let's look at that again. And so I'm going to leave you with five truths or five principles based on our text today. And the first principle is understand your example. And so it starts with, with a, the first couple of words, so then. That Greek word is called hoste, H-O-S-T-E. And it's a Greek participle that ties the previous statement to the current statement. And so you have to go backwards to see what he's referring to. And if you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here we see the ultimate example of our Lord, Jesus who descended from all his glory, took on his humanity, lived a perfect life in all humility, and showed us what a godly servant should look like, and suffered and died for our sins that we might have life. In John, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 6, the author writes, He who says that he abides in him ought to himself also walk just as he walked. So that's the first truth. The second truth is understand that you are loved. And it's under the two words, my beloved. The words my beloved were comforting to the Philippian believers. They were not living in the American Bible Belt, full of luxury and peace, but quite the opposite. They were poor. They lived in a Roman city. And they felt like aliens, like strangers. And they were persecuted. Paul's love for them was reflected a reflection of Christ's love for them. Philippians 1.8 says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you, all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Even in their failures and difficulties, they were loved. Paul's call to the Philippians was an affectionate call to follow his example, knowing this would further their joy. Principle number three, understanding obedience. And that's under the few words that say, uh, just as you have obeyed. And that word for obedience, the, the, the Greek word is hupo kuo. Hupo means under. And uh, Bill can probably correct me if I say this wrong because I know you're a Greek student. But, uh, and then kuo, and it's where we get the word acoustic, has to do with sound. So literally that means to place yourself under or submission to what you have heard. Um, we are sinful and prone to justify ourselves uh, and blame shift when we are... Oh, I got... Sorry, I, got, I skipped a section here. Literally, it means to place yourself under. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, 19 through 20, commands disciples to, in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our great commission, right? Those were our parting, that was Christ's parting orders for us. 
We are called to have a role either directly or indirectly to make disciples, baptize, and teach God's word to those he places under our sphere of influence, such as our children or grandchildren or families, our place of work or social networks. Number four is understand personal responsibilities, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. The fourth aspect of believers is working out their sanctification in, in working out their sanctification is understanding their personal responsibilities. We are sinful and prone to justify ourselves, blame shift our failures on others or our circumstances. Also, we are prone to let our behavior get lax when absent from fellowship with others. Paul wanted to remind them their responsibility to obey was not to him, but to the Lord. Earlier in Philippians chapter 1, Paul had already stated in in, uh, verse 27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The last uh, truth uh, or lesson to be learned is understanding the consequences, and that's in verse 12. And that's kind of the part that I think we all focus on, and it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The fifth motive for our sanctification is understanding the effects of our sin on our daily walk with Jesus. Our God is full of mercy and love and forgiveness, but he does hold us account for our disobedience. First John in chapter 1 states in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive I'm sorry, we de- <laughs> if I look up, I keep losing my place. Uh, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Despite our salvation, the believer still walks with fear and trembling before God. Fear is tranla- translated from the Greek word phobia, or phobos, and it's where we get the word phobia. And so we all know of different phobias, arachnophobia, Agoraphobia, which is fear of big places. Uh, I have claustrophobia, means I don't like to be in tight places, which makes me increasingly have trouble getting on a plane. Um, it is fear. It is fear which recognizes our frailty and our weakness, and a propensity to wonder. Tremor, which comes from, from the Greek word tromos, which refers to shaking. This comes from, again, recognizing our own spiritual weakness and power of temptation. The emphasis in Isaiah 66, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. To have such fear and trembling is more than recognizing our fleshly state, but walking in solemn humility and reverential fear of God. In Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And I might, I, one point I forgot to state under fear is that a lot of people want to define that fear, or what does that really look like? Martin Luther defines that fear as a fear we would have for our Father. It's a reverential fear for our holy God. Work out. Let's talk about that for a minute. Work out is the imperative, and I'm going to butcher this word, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Katergazmai, it's a K-A-T-E-R-G-A-Z-O-M-I-A, which is a command that has a continuing emphasis, meaning it's an ongoing command. 
And the command is for Christ followers to make a continuing and sustaining effort to work out to completion their salvation, given to them by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. On a practical level, what does that look like? We walk in, number one, deep adoration and love towards the Heavenly Father. Number two, in constant study of God's Word. Number three, in constant prayer, knowing that it is the Holy Spirit that empowers us. Number four, in constant humility, knowing we were bought with a great price and are still weak in our flesh in a hostile land whose prince seeks to destroy us. And then, in constant gratitude for God's provision, including his mercy and forgiveness. And when we fail, we willingly accept his chastisement. So, just to recap these these five points. Number one, remember who our example is. It was Jesus. Remember, we are the object of our Savior's love. Remember the importance of obedience. And also remember our responsibility to Jesus. And lastly, remember our work of sanctification. That is something that is ongoing. And we do that in fear and trembling. We're going to get out real early. So we're, get, we're going to finish this as just so uh, uh, everybody knows. I'm not going to go much longer. Um, so I like the sport cross country and track and running sports uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, one of them is my boys uh, did those sports and also there's a lot of parallelisms to that in the Christian walk. Paul liked it, too. Um, in 1 Corinthians 9, he writes, Do you not know that those who run the race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. So I've gone this whole time, and I've not cried. But I'm going to tell you a story. Because um, it's a picture of how we should be striving. And I know I've told some people this story already. So Nate, uh, our older son, um, uh, is had the most drive uh, to win and run of anybody that I'd ever seen. Even his coach said uh, that when he was in junior high, he had to he had to tell Nathan to quit running because he was going to injure himself, and he just wanted to keep running. And so, as you can imagine, things pinnacle your senior year in high school. That's when you really want to shine. And so it was fall of Nate's senior year, uh, and their team had qualified for state. And Nate was slated to do pretty well, probably finish in the top five. And um, and he, as you can imagine, he had certainly trained for that. Um, we had a, another young man staying with us at the time, Merritt Sunram, who some of you all know, great young man who's actually now in ministry. Uh, he's in youth ministry, and, and uh, he is a very talented runner as well. Well, that Friday night before state, we get a call. He had gone over to his aunt's house, and he goes, I'm sick. And he had, uh, some people would not experience this, right, Hallie, a bad GI bug. And, uh, uh, and um, was out, and, uh, and so we're just like, oh, stay over there. And uh, anyway, Merritt felt well enough to go on the bus and, and go to the state. Where state was run for that that class was at the Votech in Shawnee. Uh, I know many of you all have been there. And uh, uh, Nate went early with the team bus, and so we showed up a little bit later. And Nate comes up to us after we arrive, and uh, he goes, Dad, I'm sick. And he was pale. And the doctor and me wanted to tell him not to run. And uh, But I, I knew Nate wanted to run. 
So I said, son, it's up to you. Well, <clears throat> he ran. And uh, the race started. And, and one of the things, that if you know about anything about cross country, is you don't get to sit back. It's not like running a track. You don't get to watch the whole race. You kind of get to see little snippets of the race. And uh, uh, at the one of the last times you get to see the runners before they finish is roughly around the two-mile mark. And Nate was doing pretty good. He was he was somewhere in the top five. I can't remember. He certainly wasn't leading the race. And I thought, you know, we're going to be okay. And so we went from there to the finish line to watch the runners come in. And the final stretch that you get to watch for that race is, I'm not sure how far Kelly would say, about three or 400 meters, something like that. And so we're standing at the finish line. We're looking uh, down the course, waiting for him to come in. And we start seeing runners come around, and he's not there. And uh, uh, runners are coming in. And then we finally catch a glimpse of Nate, and his hands are limp. And uh, his head is kind of dangling. Uh, and literally his eyes are rolled back in his head. His, you can just see the whites of his eyes. He looks like a zombie. And he's not pale. He's gray. And, uh, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, you know. And somehow he's still moving forward. He's kind of going at a trot's race. And, of course, ra- you know, racers are pa- running past him like he's standing still. And I think he still managed to finish in the top 15 and get alternate. But he, he he got through the finish line, and they have kind of a gate they run the runners through before they're actually free to do whatever. And me and another guy grabbed Nate and kind of led him through the gate. And over the next half hour, seemed like an eternity, he finally came to. Uh, and against my advice, he, he went to eat barbecue with his classmates. And I wanted to take him to the emergency room and get IV fluids. Uh, uh, but, you know... The reason I tell you this picture is I think that's a little bit of a glimpse of how we're to strive. You know, not that we're to be zombies, but Nate ran with every ounce of effort he and drive that he had in him. And I think that's what our, our responsibility is. And we're going to talk next week about God's responsibility. It's not like we're in this by ourselves. In fact, God gives us the ability to do this, and so it ultimately is God, isn't it? Um, Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day, and Father, uh, there's a lot to digest here, and I pray that a few of the things have sunk into our hearts and minds. They've certainly sunk into mine. Father, just continue to work in each person here. Uh, May we continue to grow in you. I lift each person here up and just pray that you would please guide us this week. May we walk in the fullness of your spirit in your precious name. Amen.